Hello, and welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Life, the podcast. We're still doing our year-end rewind. We did one for Christmas week. This is New Year's week. And so I am going back, and I know a lot of you guys are making New Year's resolutions, and we've talked about this a lot on the show before, but basically, uh, what's the expression I want to use? You can always out-eat whatever exercise you're doing, right? Uh, It's a lot easier to not eat 200 calories than it is to burn 200 calories, just so you know. Uh, you know, when, when you're thinking about losing weight, when you're thinking about changing your body composition, that's always something to keep in mind. Uh, well, this year I did a great interview. Uh, not that I did a great interview, but the people that I talked to were very good. It's, 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 uh, it's David Robenheimer and Stephen Simpson. Uh, they, are, they are authors of the book, Eat Like the Animals. Basically, we are going to talk. I'm going to replay the interview here in a second. This was a discussion that we had about how to properly eat uh, and how to properly stock your pantry if you would like to eat as healthy as possible. And basically, it involves letting your body's natural cravings take over. But in order to do that, you first have to make sure that you're eliminating foods that that interfere with those cravings. Uh, they explain it in much more detail. But again, their book, Eat Like the Animals, and uh, I think it's worth us all listening to uh, again. So if you're getting ready for a New Year's resolution that involves any kind of body composition change, this is a natural way to eat in the healthiest way possible. Of course, before we get to that, we need to hear from our sponsors, including Rocket Mortgage. This part of Intelligence for Life, the podcast, is presented by Rocket Mortgage. When you need certainty in the home buying process with a loan that fits your life, Rocket can. All right, here is my interview with David Robenheimer and Stephen Simpson. David Robenheimer and Stephen Simpson, authors of the book Eat Like the Animals. Very excited to have you guys with us. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Gabe. All right, so um, we're going to dive right into this because I, this is actually something that I'm really passionate about. I believe, I believe that we have too much food that is too easy for us to get, and it's all been engineered to make us want it in a way that we shouldn't ever want it. And and because of that, we have we have overweight, malnourished people for the first time in human history, which is like mind blowing to me. Right? We're not getting enough vitamins, but we're getting too many calories. And you seem to have the solution with this from from all of your from all of your studies. So uh, you know, I, 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 uh, how do we eat like animals? How do we get how do we get that back? How do we get that sort of natural way of eating back? Well, Gibby, you, you've stated the problem perfectly. That's exactly the situation, and the reason is precisely as you said that we've designed a food environment that quite literally is hacking our basic biology. And the story of Eat Like the Animals is how does our basic biology work and how should it work and why does it go wrong in the modern food environment? Mm -hmm. And what we've learned is essentially that we, like all animals, have evolved these exquisite appetite control systems that measure and regulate the intake of a series of key nutrients in our diet protein, fat, carbohydrate, salt, and calcium, and that those appetites should be guiding us to a healthy uh, healthy weight and, and good lifelong health. But because of the fact that we're now in a world where our food environment is tapping into those appetites, subverting them, hacking them, we've got terrible problems. Right. So we're, we're really trying to understand the biology of where things have gone wrong and coming up with simple solutions to put it right again. 
And it's not only the biology, we're also trying to understand the ecology of how these uh, these mechanisms that we share with other species, what sort of circumstances they're involved in and how those circumstances differ in our modern world. And one really key difference is that we've studied over the past 30, 35 years, I think it's 40 or more species, and, and both in the wild and in the laboratory. So we understand the natural world well. One very key very important difference is that in nature there are very few foods that are designed specifically to be eaten and eaten in large quantities right right now if you think about that maybe fruits are that way because they provide a um, dispersal mechanism for the seeds of sure. plants nectar is a little bit like that but most foods are averse to being eaten so <laughs> biology has evolved to deal with that aversion to cope with the obstacles to nutrition and suddenly we find ourselves in an environment that's the exact opposite. And that is we've got foods beckoning at our appetites to be eaten and eaten in large quantities. Interesting. I mean, I, I never thought of it framing it like that, but it is a, it's a great point. Like you said, there's there's a handful of things that are meant to be eaten and the rest is, is a fight. Um, have we lost this battle? I mean, obviously you guys wrote the book, so you don't think we've lost it. But I... I, I I, I being inundated with all of this stuff day in day out uh, and fad diets and all of these other things. Uh, how do we begin to unpack those? You know, you you mentioned five core appetites for uh, you know uh, carbohydrates, protein, fat, uh, calcium, and uh, what, what's what, what am I missing? Sodium. Yeah. 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 So we've um, far from lost the battle. I think we've just begun the battle because it's only very recently that we've come to understand the mechanisms in the way that we've described in the book that are driving the problem. Mm -hmm. So I think with that understanding, we really empowered to approach the situation in a very different way. Yeah. And, and that is what the book is about. Because there's a really it's a good news story in the sense that we haven't broken our biology. Um, it still works. It's still there. And it's really a question of how we use the, our, our biology of appetite, those five appetites you mentioned, um, to our best benefit, to our best health, rather than for the profits of the ultra-processed food industries. Sure. So it's not a bad story. It's a good story. We've got these latent abilities extraordinary abilities to regulate our, our own nutrition without having to have technology involved, without having to even count calories. It can be done for us, but um, we just need to listen to those appetites and to put them in the right in, uh, food environments. Right. Uh, okay, so, so most of us are not... Uh, most of us are not uh, very well educated about the food that we're putting into our bodies. Most of us are overworked, uh, overstressed. We don't sleep enough, which also, you know, I've, I've, yep. I, it messes with our ability to to make good food choices. Um, so we live in this life that that a lot of us can't undo. You know, we've got children and jobs and hobbies, and 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 at the at the end of the day, we are going to go the path of least resistance. No matter how much we fight, we may diet for a little while, we may get in better shape. How do we start to deal with a, a multi billion dollar industry that is telling us to just reach for the quick fix um, and instead listen to our bodies? Because I would love to go live on a farm and grow my own food and eat organic vegetables all the time and listen to my body. I just I, I don't live that life. So how do we start to unpack no. what you've learned and what your research has shown and applying it to our daily lives? 
Well, there's there, there's a long-term solution and a short-term solution. The long-term solution is that we really need to work as a society together with industry. Industry is not an evil organization, institution trying to ruin the health of the population. Mm -hmm. Industry is doing what industry is set up to do, and that is making profit. Right, they're doing right. it very well. Unfortunately, now via a route that is wreaking havoc on public health globally. Um, so that's a longer-term project. The shorter-term project that is each of us is really empowered in is the capacity to decide what sort of food environment we want to live in. Do we want to live in an environment where a food, by a food environment, I mean a local food environment, what mm -hmm. sort of foods do we want to surround ourselves with at home so that when, we, when our appetites um, are activating us to eat, they, we reach for something that they're equipped to cope with, which isn't highly processed foods, but are, are whole foods. Fortunately, those are still available in large <laughs> quantities within our environment. They are open to our choice, to our selection. We can regulate what comes into our household. So the way that we put it is to, to shop with your brains and eat with your appetites. Interesting. Okay, so that, that's actually a great point, right? If you don't have the cookies and the Pop-Tarts in your house, you're not going to reach for those engineered foods. You're going to reach for whatever you have, and that could be a thing of blueberries or an apple or whatever that may be. So the first step is to, I love that, shop with your shop with your mind, uh, eat with your appetite. So the first step, again, shop and put the foods, the whole foods, into your home that, uh, that, that, will, that, are, that are best suited for you. Um, how, do we, how do we begin to deprogram ourselves? Because I know when I'm exercising well and I'm eating well, I I have no problem listening to my body and eating good foods. The hard part is getting to the place where I, I've deprogrammed myself after a little while. So how do we start that deprogramming process so that we can listen to those um to we can listen to those appetites that, that we really need? Yeah, no, that that's uh, that's a great question and and as david said it, it starts with surrounding yourself with appropriate foods and it's it's a really I, I think an important lesson to learn is how your appetites are being distorted and and hacked um and a beautiful example of that is um the protein appetite now we know and we'll, we'll talk about that more i'm sure that the protein appetite is is our most powerful appetite it's the one that will dominate when you come um, to be faced with choices around what you um, should or shouldn't eat in mm. relation to other nutrients. Protein will dominate. Now, when your protein appetite um, is hungry, you start to crave particular flavors. And those are the, the classic savory flavors, umami flavors, as the Japanese um, call them. Mm -hmm. uh, your body's telling you you need to eat protein, protein has become associated in our evolutionary past with that flavor, that set of flavors. And so you, you're seeking those flavors. Now, the nearest source of savory flavor in, in most food environments will be a packet of uh, Doritos or, or some other savory oh, snack yeah, that yeah. has that distinctive lip-smacking umami flavor, but is in fact simply a protein decoy because all it is is a pile of fat and carbs you're going to reach for those, they'll taste fantastic, and your your protein appetite will remain unsatiated, and you're going to have to eat yet more calories to try and find it. Mm. So there's an example where a, a simple understanding of an appetite system 
can be it can sort of lift the veil over over how the food environment is is manipulating our appetites and it gives you something to work with when it comes to fighting back and you can see the same mechanism operating in the natural world we write at length in the book about the um orangutans and how they respond in the wild so uh, orangutans um have this situation where fruits are periodically abundant and then they're very scarce and mm -hmm. Um, what happens is, of course, it's in the tree's interests to have the fruits eaten by orangutans because that's a mechanism for dispersing the seeds. So the, the fruits are effectively, the trees are enticing the orangutans to eat those fruits. And the way that they entice the orangutan, one of the few foods in nature that really are designed to be eaten in large quantities. And mm -hmm. the way they do that is very similar to the way that processed foods entice us to eat them. And that is they have a low proportion of protein protein to fats and carbohydrates. And what that means is you have to eat a lot of the food to satiate your protein oh, appetite, wow. as Steve was saying. So in a way, the food industry is keyed into something that nature has keyed into um, millions and millions of years ago, using similar mechanisms to entice overconsumption of foods for the benefit, not of the consumer, but for the benefit of the food producer. Trees in nature highly processed food industry in, in our society. And the bliss point is the other obvious example of that, where if you combine fats and sugars in roughly equal measure, then you end up with this super palatable substance, which is going to induce you to eat a little bit more of it than you otherwise would. And, and again, we see this um, in nature on occasions. Um, and we've even got, there's a, a massive study coming out um, from the lab in a couple of weeks' time in, in a journal called Nature Metabolism, where we've found that um, high fructose corn syrup, that one-to-one -one mixture of glucose to fructose, hits not only the sweet spot when it comes to driving over consumption, far more than even sucrose, the, 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 the table sugar, which right, is right. those same two um, nutrients mixed um, but, but bound together in a single molecule. Um, and also it, it activates lipogenesis with um, fat deposition with greatest, um, um, with, 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 with greatest force. So you actually have this combination which is designed to cause you to eat more and has um, biggest impact um, on your physiology, in this case, in terms of laying down fat. Wow, so and add to that the fact that um, fiber is also stripped out of highly processed food. Right. And fiber operates as a break on the appetite system. So if you have a relatively low protein diet combined with high fiber, you don't stay hungry because the fiber satiates you instead of the protein satiating you. Mm. Um, so that combination of low protein, high fat and carbohydrate, low fiber, aggressive marketing, addition of flavorants, including salt, large quantities of salt. That's what the food industry has designed um, in order to entice us to do what we're doing at the moment, overeating highly processed foods to our detriment. I mean, you, you, you've plugged into a couple of things that I, had not occurred to me. Like one, I was not fully aware that uh, protein was our main driver. And I was... I, you know, I know that fruit is designed to be eaten, but I did not know that it had a sort of a trace amount of protein that was meant to make us eat more of it in order to uh, in order to get that protein fix. 
So that's kind of, and I absolutely, once you say that, I can start to see it in, in all of these other foods. Um, the damage of high fructose corn syrup, I've, I've, I've heard about that before. Is the solution to that as simple as, as replacing uh, or, or as easy as replacing real sugar uh, with high fructose corn syrup wherever we can? Could could we just clarify one thing? Um, what's happening is the fact that, that fruits in nature cause primates like orangutans to overeat energy and become obese it does not imply that the same happens for us. And the reason for that is that is that on fruits, we don't overeat um, energy, fats and carbohydrates for the reason that they're also rich in fiber. Right. Whereas, um, orangutans and other primates have a gut that isn't satiated nearly as easily by high fiber content. Right. So it's a very different situation. Yeah, we're well, certainly not saying don't eat fruit. No, um, no, I get that. I get that. I get that. Yeah. No, no, I understand what you're, what you're saying is you observe this behavior in orangutans in nature but then apply and, and then you can see that same behavior in the processed food industry yeah. and how humans relate yeah. to it. I, I, I understand the, the distinction there. And I love the idea of using fiber. I mean, look, I, I know for a fact we just don't get enough fiber in our diets. It's a great prebiotic for keeping your gut in check. I, I, psyllium husk sure. powder is a really inexpensive way. Uh, you can add it to your food or you can just put it in water. It's a really inexpensive way to keep the fiber up in your diet. So big fans of both of those. Um, uh, I just... I guess, you know, I, 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 I want to start getting into how to begin to unhack ourselves and start to do yes. this. So, like, I mean, high-protein foods to have around, do we just should we just be having uh, nuts and seeds that are naturally high in protein, having uh, right. low-sugar right. uh, uh, beef jerky around, that kind of thing? Well, the, 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 the key is protein, and, and of, of all of the nutrients, it, it's the one that gives you biggest bang for your buck when it comes mm -hmm. to regulating your your appetites and is, is that because it, of the 12 essential amino acids like this idea that there's some things you can only get from eating uh, actual protein yeah so so there are it's it's an extraordinarily interesting macronutrient so um it has a couple of properties one is that you can get energy from it of course as you can from fats and carbs too but the one thing that you can't get from fats and carbs is nitrogen. Mm. And you need nitrogen to build new tissues, to reproduce, to maintain your cells and so on. And it comes in the form of 20 amino acids. Um, a bunch of those, nine or 10 of them are essential. You can't make them yourself, nor can most animals actually. Mm -hmm. And therefore you need a diet which contains sufficient quantities of protein um, which has an appropriate balance of those essential amino acids. So it's quite a complex piece of nutritional balancing that's required. But happily, uh, nature's done that for us. And the protein appetite, animals care a lot about. So it's, it's bad to eat too little protein because ultimately you won't grow, you won't be able to reproduce and all those other things. But, and we showed this um, really importantly in a whole series of studies, you don't want to eat too much protein either because there's a downside to eating too much protein. And we mm. can unpack that a little bit. But it's uh, the whole point about protein, and I think one of the, the key insights that came from our work was that if you look at the last 50 or 60 years over which the obesity epidemic has happened globally, mm -hmm. 
remarkably, protein intake has stayed virtually the same across right. that period of time. Wow. The, the excess calories we've eaten have come as fats and carbs, and that's led everybody to say, well, it's fats and carbs are the problem. We must have a really powerful appetite for fats and carbs. Um, and then there's been this sort of 40-year fight over which is worse, saturated fats or, or sugar. Mm -hmm. and, and that's become more and more exaggerated, in fact, over time. And what we pointed out was the fact that protein carbs haven't con contributed to the growing global waistline. It's remained virtually the same. But that's that's the cause. Um, our body's trying to keep that same intake year on year of protein in a world where fats and carbs have diluted protein in the food supply through these ultra processed foods. Uh, that's driven us to eat more and more and more. Our protein appetite sits underneath all of this. And that really turned the world on its head when it came to understanding the global obesity epidemic. Everybody else had been looking at fats and carbs mm -hmm. and fighting with one another over <laughs> which was worse. And all the while, protein was sitting there constant, but driving, masterminding, if you like, the entire problem. Another reason why our appetites work so hard to ensure that we get the right amount of protein on a daily basis, as is the case for many other species, is unlike carbohydrates, unlike energy, we don't have a mechanism for storing excess protein right. if we overeat it on a given day. And that right. means in days when uh, uh, we are vulnerable to undereating it, we don't have a store to draw on to derive amino acids to fuel our metabolism yeah. and all the functions. Right. Of Other than your lean muscle. Yeah, lean muscle. Right. You, don't, you don't want to be losing that unnecessarily. Yep. Right. So that, yeah, it's so uh, that's actually really, that's, a, that's another great point is you have to do this consistently, right? Where, you, where if you eat plenty of fat, you'll store it as fat and you'll be fine. If you eat plenty of carbohydrates, you'll store it as glycogen and fat and you'll be fine. But yeah, yeah. This, this protein concept, that's, uh, so I mean, is, is Atkins the key? Is that, I mean, I, I know you guys aren't fat diets, but that seems to be what you're pointing to, right? Is this idea of a high protein diet is the starting place? Well, as, if you increase the proportion of protein in the diet, then you need to eat fewer calories to reach your protein target, as we call it, right. and then you'll feel more satisfied. So that, to that extent, um, that explains actually why Atkins works. And not mm -hmm. only Atkins, A A Atkins has, has um, concentrated protein in the diet principally by removing carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, that's taken to a, a, the next level in the ketogenic diets, and even further, if you're um, if you're moving into carnivory um, and that right. particular fad, right. but it, it doesn't really matter actually. If you remove non-protein energy from the diet, you concentrate protein. You need to eat fewer calories to reach your protein target. So, as a means to limit calorie intake, a higher protein diet is fantastic. But and this um, and 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 our discovery of that is used by the fad diet, the higher protein fad diet industries um, as justification mm -hmm. for their particular um, business model. And that's terrific. But like good scientists, we ask the question, well, if our bodies don't want us to eat too little protein, we can understand that. But why are we regulating to an upper limit? Why aren't we overeating protein when we have the opportunity? Because we just don't. 
And the answer to that came from uh, our and many others now experiments showing that there's actually a cost to going on to a higher than optimal protein diet. And that cost comes particularly in mid-age, middle age and early late age, um, where you super drive the pathways that, that um, produce um, the biology of aging. So you, you turn on the pathways that, that accelerate the biology of aging, mm. the growth pathways, the reproductive pathways, and you turn down the protective pathways that would otherwise, <clears throat> that would otherwise um, protect your cells through periods um, of shortage. So it's, uh, there's a cost to eating too much protein. So it's a great thing to do if you want to um, manage calorie intake mm -hmm. uh, for a period. But once you've normalized, um, it's, we would suggest probably not a good thing to do in the long term. Interesting. So, okay, so let me just try to get as practical as possible here. What I hear you say is if we overeat the protein, we're going to uh, accelerate our, our aging processes at the cellular level. I, I understand that. Um, but it, so what we should do is start this whole process by ingesting more protein or, or eating protein and fiber first. So finding uh, dietary sources of protein and fiber to start our days uh, and, and then eating to satiety on top of that. Is that, is that the key? Yep, that's, that's not a bad formula, actually, Gib. Yeah, and, and um, the, the, the simple way to do it is to remove extraneous fats and carbs um, and try to get to the point where you get that balance of your protein appetite being satiated, you've got lots of um, healthy fiber in your diet, and yet you're not um, otherwise hungry for carbs and fats, because you do have separate appetites for them as well. Um, and that sort of balancing point, you can titrate protein and fiber into the diet till you reach that. And you, you'll you know that. You'll start to feel that yourselves. I mean, what you're saying is grilled chicken, grilled chicken salads. <laughs> Basically, yep. start with grilled chicken salads. That's your ideal. That's your ideal palate, and then you can just sort of replace the grilled chicken elements of the grilled chicken salad with other things as you eat. You know, maybe you don't want spinach today. Maybe you want, you know, mixed greens, and maybe it's not just chicken; it's salmon. And instead of dressing, you're gonna you're gonna use a bun, whatever that may. Yeah, be. sure, sure. And and healthy healthy, um, particularly resistant starches uh, are powerfully protective, um, not only of your gut microbiome and, and um, immune function, but they're, they're also really healthful carbohydrate sources. So things like um, sweet potato and starchy, healthy starchy vegetables with complex starches, um, the so-called resistant starches, and, and that can include wholemeal pastas and even pastas that you cook, cool, and then... Um, refresh with boiling water what's happened in there in that process is that you've bound the carbohydrates more tightly and they're more resistant to digestion and so you're going to be feeding your gut microbiome with those sorts of carbohydrates um, in a better way and similarly of course healthy fats um, the monounsaturates polyunsaturates um, and there's there's an entire argument around 
healthiness of fats and of different carbohydrates. Mm. And sadly, much of that argument is played out one nutrient at a time. And right. that's a fundamental problem in the whole of nutrition science, which um, is, is diametrically opposite to the way we've gone about trying to understand the interactions between nutrients and other food components. It's also very important, especially for your listeners, to not to overthink the issue in right. terms of specific nutrients, in terms of the, the science underlying it. There's a very simple formula, and we've shown this in experiments. If you surround yourself with healthy foods, human beings use our appetite systems like any other species mm -hmm. to instinctively select a balanced diet. Our bodies know what it wants, what they want. They tell us what to eat in those situations, and that leads to a balanced diet. Yeah, I mean, what I'm hearing you say, again, is I, I fill my fridge up with whole foods. Um, I keep a protein and fiber the shortest distance away from me at any given time. And, and then I can listen to my body after that, which I think yeah. is is probably the the best thing we could po we could have in this situation, right? Like, uh, there's a little bit of, if you can, <laughs> back to the, one of the first things you guys said, which I think is, is, I know you guys have plenty of academic acolytes, but I think this one line is really kind of genius is, is shop with your head, eat with your gut, or you know, eat with your uh, with your appetite, and Appetites. I think yeah. that's that's yeah. amazing. Um, I mean, I think that's the key, right? Like, fill up that house, start with protein and fiber, make sure you're getting enough of that, and 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 then leave leave the rest to your your natural desires. That's absolutely right, and and where as susceptible as everybody, um, you know, if I oh, sure. if I have stuff in the house. Um, that I shouldn't eat, I'll eat it because it's designed mm -hmm. to um, to make it um, impossible to resist. And it's not a failure of willpower. It's not a uh, a failure of of anything. It's nothing to do with with human frailty. It's it's the fact that these things are designed to tap into and to manipulate the most powerful biological urges mm -hmm. and systems mm -hmm. that. Uh, that we've evolved. Every animal has two things that has to get right in life. One is um, to eat and the other is to reproduce. Mm -hmm. And those are the two biggest drivers, uh, along with the risk of being eaten by somebody else and mm -hmm. avoiding that. Those drivers have led to the entire history of the evolution of life. Mm -hmm. A good way to think about it is highly processed foods um, they're entertainment, they're not nutrition. And there's nothing wrong with entertainment, but when entertainment displaces nutrition and diet, yeah. then the problem sets in. And that's what's happened um, on a very large scale over the past 50 or 60 years in our societies. I mean, and it's not just in food. Like, to your point, we have these appetites for all kinds of things, for, for emotional connection and what we can get addicted to television and video games and all of yeah. these that, that take us away from real human interaction uh that that actually you know again that's a different kind of satiety but but it's the it's the same concept concept i know yeah. i've asked you to be overly reductive about your very extensive and academically rigorous research so i appreciate you guys um uh bearing with me on that and I, but i i really do think that the key ta takeaway here is is pretty amazing which is start with fiber and protein and go from there. I, I do want to talk about the, the calcium appetite that you mentioned and, yeah. and how uh, I, I don't I don't really understand. I mean, I know calcium is good for me. I know why I need it for my bones. I know all of that stuff I've been marketed to by all the different supplement companies. But how do I um, how do I how do I have the high calcium foods that I can get it naturally without having to take like a chew or something that's going to hurt my kidneys? 
Ah, well, um, that, the calcium appetite is probably the least well understood of them, but you're exactly right. You, you need it for your bones. Um, you, you need it for every cell in your body to work properly because calcium currents are part of the spark of life along with sodium currents and potassium currents. And so, and your heart beats as a result of calcium. So everything about you is um, reliant on calcium and sodium as two, the two key uh, mineral nutrients. And therefore, not surprisingly, we've got separate appetite systems for them. The sodium one is better understood, and 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 we we know that you know when you need sodium, you you get the 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 craving for salty flavors, mm-hmm. and and there are wonderful stories in the natural world of elephants walking miles into underground caves to 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 find salt licks, and and salt can be generally eaten as a separate source from the rest of your calories, so that that makes it um, an an easier appetite to mm-hmm. understand. Um, calcium is a little bit more mysterious. We we have a specific taste receptor um, for for calcium, but but it doesn't tap into our consciousness in the same way that salt and sweet and some and and umami do. Um, and calcium is found and separately ingested. Um, you see this in the animal kingdom with birds during periods when they're they're laying their eggs or manufacturing their eggs. They mm-hmm. need calcium, so they seek out high calcium um, foods, including snails with snail shells and other sources of calcium. We get calcium in a whole range of, of different places. Obviously, dairy is is a rich source of calcium, and many of the leafy green vegetables as well. So calcium comes. Um, coupled with the nutrients in many of the the foods that are important staples in in the human diet, um, and it's probably the one you need to, le- to 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 worry about or think about least, um, because you're going to get it if you eat whole foods. There's no need to really worry about it beyond that. Um, and in the case of sodium, the thing to worry about there more is not getting. Um, sufficient it's it's having to eat too much as a re- as a result of it being added in to other foods that we're eating right to make them taste nicer and this takes us back to the processed food industries sure because what you're doing there is you're pitting your appetite for sodium against your appetites for protein carbohydrates and fats and right protein will win and you'll overeat a low protein food despite the fact that to do so you'll get not only more calories but you'll get more sodium as well and you'll end up paying the price in both cases right sodium actually is a very very important part of our food environment it's probably well not probably it certainly is the nutrient that causes the most preventable deaths wow um, in human societies now overconsumption of sodium associated with hypertension heart disease and so forth and the reason is as steve says is that it's not the sodium is not the salt that we're putting on our foods at home that are at fault. It's the fact without even knowing it, we are eating large quantities right. of sodium right. in the form of foods that have been industrially processed. And sodium is added as a flavor enhancer to those foods. Yeah, I've noticed when I've gone on, uh, when I've like, when I've tri- when I've cut out processed foods from my diet uh, periodically, there is a period of time about, it takes about a week, maybe four days to a week. 
and um and all of a sudden I have these really bad headaches and all of these things and and um my stomach starts to hurt and I if I I have to actually supplement with a little bit of salt at that time yep. and all of a sudden my mental clarity yep. comes right back because when I've cut the processed foods out my body is a, is adapting to a much lower baseline of sodium intake yeah. Uh, yeah. and it takes me a minute to to renormalize myself to that and I know I'm not a chemistry set but it feels like it at those points. Yeah, no, you are a chemistry set. You're a fantastic chem- chemistry set, very complex, but beautifully designed one. But that, you're exactly right. And you, your body will adapt um, to deal with um, a higher intake of salt than perhaps is healthy. Um, and when you come off it, your body is still expecting it. Right. And, and, and getting rid so what happens typically is if you have too high an intake of a nutrient over a given period of time or a prolonged period of time your body gets very good at at getting rid of the excess so it Mm. keeps what it needs and chucks the rest out the 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 process of chucking it out through your kidneys in the case of salt comes at a cost but it can be done but it means that you're really inefficient in the way you're using the salt Mm -hmm. and if you cut the intake of salt, then you'll you'll continue to be inefficient and therefore not get enough to meet your actual requirements. So you'll have at least for a period um, to up it a little bit and and to readapt physiologically to set or reset your physiology so that it's it's more efficient and you're eating um, you're, of that that you're eating you're wasting less and using more. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and there's I, a good example actually where, and this is a very positive side to the story, and that is that the processed food industry um, is is highly motivated to find ways of producing profitable foods that aren't damaging to health, and 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 the many examples where 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 this has been attempted. One of the ones that I like is in the United Kingdom with reducing salt intake in the English population, and and the strategy taken there for the reasons that that you you saying Gib, is not to reduce the salt content of their products overnight, but to gradually reduce the salt content of the product products. Mm-hmm. So that consumers, their bodies can adapt to it. And also the other thing is that there's no big shock. There's no big change in the flavor and the perception of those foods for consumers. And they reduced salt content in their lines, in their products quite considerably without consumers noticing because they stepped it down gradually rather than in a single step. Interesting. I mean, it's good to know that there is a that there is a. a, a uh policy level change that 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 is bringing that about because uh having experienced it firsthand i it sort of makes me hyper aware of just how much salt is actually in in processed food because i i, I felt that withdrawal uh situation so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. weirdly you probably it's probably healthier to be adding salt from a salt shaker right to your food because you're able then to control it independently mm-hmm. of your other appetites and mm-hmm. that's the way we design we we evolved to um, meet our appetites for both sodium and calcium, mm-hmm. to do it separately from the calories and the macronutrients. And that's true of pretty well all animals as well. Yeah. And we've caused the problem by combining them. Also, the strong flavor from the real source of the thing, uh, it, generally speaking, has a much more uh, satiating effect. So you know, I, if if um, if I'm drinking a soda with high fructose corn syrup, I can maybe have three sodas at, in during one movie. 
But try drinking yeah. a real sugar soda. It's hard to finish one. Even if you're used to drinking soda, it's hard to finish one because the sugar satiates you. Yep. That's, yeah. And that, that really accords with our big study that's coming out soon in mice. Exactly that phenomenon. Um, you, yeah, that, that's spot on. The other, the other thing, of course, is that if you took something like um, fruit juice, where mm -hmm. you've taken the fiber out of it, right. you, you imagine eating the number of apples that would be required right. to, to get a, a liter of apple juice, which you can swallow in a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. um, you, you would burst because of the fiber. <laughs> right. We write in the book, it's, um, it's four apples per glass of orange juice. Who's going to be able to eat four apples at right. a sitting? Well, a glass of apple juice anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah a glass <laughs> of apple juice, that's right. Um, uh, who's going to be able to eat four, four apples at a sitting? But we could easily drink two uh, glasses of apple right. juice. Right, right. And the difference is the fiber. Everything else is the same. I mean, the book, Eat Like the Animals, and the big takeaway for me, again, is is surround yourself with whole foods. Focus on that, on that protein. Make sure you're getting enough fiber and let your body do the rest. Our guests, David Robenheimer and Stephen Simpson, uh, both professors, thank you guys so much for your time. I'm going to ask you two last questions. I know your time is valuable, but one last question, uh, two last questions. One, where can people follow up with you aside from buying the book? Link to where to buy the book in the show notes. Uh, follow up us on Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter um, at Eat Like the Animals. Um, and actually, if you if you search for us on um, the internet, you'll find the link to the Charles Perkins Center here at the University of Sydney. Um, and we're really delighted to engage with people. Um, we're trying here to change um, the way that we conceive of nutrition and the food system, and really ultimately to Put it put it right yeah and taking our inspiration from um the process that has evolved the solution to the most complex challenge um that faces biology which is the challenge of nutrition um natural selection evolution has solved that uh, innumerable times in animals mm -hmm. across um, the history of of the evolution of life and we've got a lot to live to learn and a lot to listen to from them and as we said at the beginning, it's actually a good news story. It's not a bad news story because we um, now understand clearly what is driving the process of mm -hmm. the epidemic of poor health, poor mm -hmm. nutrition-related health. And if you understand that process, then it's, it's much easier to deal with it in a constructive way, both at the individual level, as we were saying, in terms of choosing which foods you surround yourself with, and ultimately at the societal level of changing the broader mm -hmm. food environment to help individuals to do that. Yeah, I, I appreciate you guys allowing me to be, again, so reductive in my assumptions about your research. But I think you're absolutely right. Like, it's not really it's not a biohack. It's a bio unhack. We're really just allowing yeah, our body to adapt uh, to adapt back to what it's supposed to be, as opposed to what we've what we've sort of fixed it in. Um, one last question Brilliant. for both of you. And because I, I ask it to everybody, what is one thing that we can all start doing today that will make our lives a whole lot better? Reduce the amount of highly processed industrial foods that we buy and take into our homes. Mm -hmm. Very simple step. To sum up again, shop with your mind and eat with your appetites. Brilliant. Spot on. And eat like the animals. I think you should read it because it's a remarkable detective story apart from anything else, a yeah. scientific detective story. So um, if you want to understand 
how your body works, how it's evolved, and how to listen to it, um, then I, I eat like the animals. <laughs> Link again where, to where to buy that in the show notes. Translated into what, 10 languages now? So uh, this is a phenomenon. Well, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, 10 or 11 at the moment. Yeah. yeah. It's been a it's been a great ride. It's it's thirty five years of hard science, um, but we tell that story, professors. Thank and you. And it's guys. a very different one in the sense that um, we've taken our inspiration and our insight and our approach to the human nutrition crisis from the natural world, and and that is what has enabled us to see things in such a different way. Um, as we say in the book, sometimes to see things clearly, it's an odd truth that you first have to look away. And that's what we've done. We've spent um, many decades looking away at other species and then turning back to our own. And that's what—that's the story we tell in Eat Like the Animals. There you have it. Professors, thank you guys so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. That's a pleasure, Gabe. Good speaking with you. That's it for our show today. If you like the show, please rate, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us out a lot. You can also uh, link with us on, on social media, facebook.com slash John Tesh, at uh, uh, Tesh underscore IFYL on Instagram. You can also follow me. I'm Gib Gerard on Twitter, at Gib Gerard, on Instagram, at Gib Gerard, and facebook.com slash Gib Gerard. I try to respond to everything that you guys say or post about the show because ultimately I do the show for you guys. So thank you so much for listening. <laughs>